Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Dear God. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. After a bone is broken, many of you know that our bodies immediately begin the healing process. If the two ends of the broken bone are properly aligned, then it will eventually heal and return to normal. However, if the two ends of the broken bone are not properly aligned, when this healing process begins, the bone will heal with a deformity that doctors call a malunion. When this happens, doctors then evaluate whether the deformity is hindering the bone's function enough that some interaction or intervention is needed. And if that's determined, that the malunion is bad enough that the, the limb, the finger, the, the arm, the leg can't do what it was originally designed to do, then an orthopedic surgeon will in surgery, re-break the bone and then reset it so it heals properly. At certain points in the life of every believer, the Lord will break the deformities that exist in our souls. Like a world-renowned pediatric orthopedic surgeon, the Lord identifies malunions in our soul and then breaks them and resets our spiritual life so that we can have the relationship with Him that we were originally designed to have. Now you might be wondering, why would the Lord inflict such pain on His children? Well, here's why. The Lord views the pain of breaking and resetting our spiritual deformities as absolutely worth it because it results, it produces results that he longs for in our lives. What are the results? Well, spiritual growth and a deeper, more intimate, more faithful relationship with him. We're continuing our series in the book of Psalms Psalms book one, uh, called Dear God. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Psalm 31, or if you have a, a tablet or a smartphone, fire up your Bible app and turn to Psalm 31. We'll also encourage you to open up your uh, sermon note handout that's in the worship folder so you can follow along with me. If you forgot your Bible, raise your hand and uh, one of our ushers will loan you one of ours. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you so that you can follow along. Our theme verse for this series on prayer is Psalm 34, verse 4. If you haven't already underlined it or highlighted it in your Bible, I want to encourage you to do so. It's where David says, in regards to prayer, I sought the Lord. He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. There are many people that want an answer or deliverance from the Lord. 
but they don't want to seek him first. And so that's important to note in the verse is that the prerequisite to answers or deliverance is seeking the Lord. And if you want to seek the Lord and see him respond and get his ear in prayer, one of the things that's most important to have is an attitude of brokenness. Thus, our big idea for today is this. The Lord longs for our brokenness so he, he can maximize our usefulness. The big idea is what I like to call the sermon in a sentence. I want to try and spend the rest of our time together proving this one statement here. And if you remember anything, I hope you'll remember I looked great in my Vanguard shirt and the Lord longs for our brokenness so he can maximize our usefulness. The Old Testament scriptures reveal time and time again that there is a correlation between brokenness and usefulness with God's people. The more broken they are, the more useful they are in his hands. There are verses in Isaiah, for example, where the Lord says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here for the sake of time, but here is the one that I will draw near to, the one who is broken and contrite in heart. This topic is one that I am quite passionate about because uh, I have to admit, when I was a, a younger believer, I was not aware of it. And if I'd known this concept of brokenness and what the scriptures teach about it, it would have saved me a lot of heartache and frustration in my walk with the Lord. And so I share it with you today, hoping that I can maybe spare you some of the agony that I went through as a younger believer, trying to understand some of the things that David talks about here in Psalm 31. Now, the superscript of this psalm doesn't tell us where David was when he wrote it. And when I say superscript, I'm referring to the very fine print that's near the chapter number or just under the title of the psalm. It just says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Uh, you might remember me mentioning the book of Psalms, especially book one, is, is a, it's a hymn book that was used in ancient Hebrew worship services, but it's also David's prayer journal. We are getting snapshots of David's life, of, of what God was doing in his life over the course of several years, and these are prayers that he wrote out as he struggled with the Lord, as he saw God do great things, and then he struggled to see sometimes other days, where's God at? Where, where are you? Why'd you abandon me? And so uh, many, some theologians believe that Psalm 30, 31 was probably written while he was running from his son, Absalom. Absalom, you might remember, uh, led a coup to overthrow his father and kick him off the throne as king of Israel so Absalom could be the king. This heart-wrenching story can be found in 2 Samuel chapters 15 to 19. If you want to jot that down, I'd encourage you to read those chapters this week, maybe in your devotional time. It's an intriguing read. It's not dry or boring at all. In fact, 2 Samuel 15 and 19, I would say, reads like a big-budget, epic Hollywood film. It's just, you read it and go, man, there was drama in the Bible before Hollywood came around. It's just, it's gripping, it's heartbreaking, it's, it's, it moves, it's got a compelling story, and it was real. 
It really happened. But reading 2 Samuel 15 and 19 will help you understand what David was going through when he wrote Psalm 31. Because what you'll see in 2 Samuel 15 and 19 is a king that was betrayed by his wisest counselor and right-hand man. And that wisest counselor, right-hand man, was persuaded to betray David by David's son, Absalom. So not only was this king and military leader, David, betrayed by one of his trusted advisors, you also have the story of a father betrayed by his son. But David, despite this, once again in Psalm 31, demonstrates his amazing faith by not only expressing his desperation, but also his confidence that God would come through in the most dire of circumstances. Therefore, this psalm, uh, you might remember me mentioning that uh, uh, the psalms are typically classified into one of six categories. This psalm is unique in that it is a combination psalm. It is a combination of lament and thanksgiving, because David does both. He laments and cries out to the Lord and says, help, 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 but he also thanks the Lord for what the Lord will do. If Psalm 13 reminded us that we will have seasons of waiting on the Lord, then Psalm 31 reminds us we will also have seasons of breaking where the Lord breaks us. Sometimes your waiting season and your breaking season will coincide. And sometimes they will occur at different times, separate. But they will come. The concept of brokenness in Psalm 31 is critical for every Christ follower to know because it answers such questions as, why does the Lord allow or cause painful trials in my life? Or why does the Lord allow injustice to happen instead of intervening and stopping it, especially when it's happening to me? Or another question that Psalm 31 answers that we often wrestle with is, why is the Lord not healing me when I'm asking him to? Why is the Lord not answering my prayers for healing? He, he does miracles for other people. Why not me? And so with that, if you would look at the text with me, Psalm 31, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and then share the first uh, interpretation point in your outline. David says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me and rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. And for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Here's the first point in your outline. Number one, the Lord wants to be our protector in breaking seasons. The Lord wants to be our protector. 
in breaking seasons. Notice how David, in his circumstances, tosses out, his, his, as his emotions are being tossed around by the waves of enemies closing in on him that want to kill him. His emotions are being tossed like waves in a severe storm, but instead he tosses out the anchor of God's word in his faith to secure his soul. In the ESV translation, David mentions rock twice in these first three verses, once in verse 2 and then once in verse 3. He uses an interesting Hebrew word that was used in the Old Testament to describe a cliff, a ridge, or a summit, like a, a very high point where snipers or an army would settle where they couldn't be snuck up on and they would have an advantage looking down on the enemy. He says, Lord, you're that for me. You're, you're that high point where every military commander wants to get to. That safe spot where enemies can't get to. Next, David goes on and he, he uses uh, the Hebrew words fortress for fortress and refuge. They're two Hebrew words. They're distinct but similar. He uses them four more times in the next couple of verses. These also were military terms, uh, often used to describe a castle, a military stronghold, a base, or a fortified structure. I think David, as a former soldier, was, was conjuring up this language to compare the Lord to the safety of a sniper's nest or a military base while he is abandoned and alone, weaponless, on the field of battle. The most vulnerable place that you can be in a war, he's out there in the crossfire of the enemy, and what he's thinking of is I, I, the Lord. I want to be with the Lord like when I'm at a military base or at a fort. I want to I be with the Lord. I'm going to claim the Lord's name. I'm going to call on the Lord because he is like being in a sniper's nest where I can't be seen and the enemy can't get me. Like a five-star general, the Lord watches over the battle, directing every movement. Like body armor, he protects David's vital organs. And like a skilled medic, he cares for David's wounds. If you would notice, uh, it, look at verse 12, you get a little more sense of how David felt in his current circumstances. He says, I've been forgotten like one who is dead, and I've become like a broken vessel. In other words, his circumstances had made him feel like, a, like a, a, a broken jar on the kitchen floor that you basically only can just pick up and throw in the trash. He's undone. He's in pieces. He's desperate for the Lord to come through. In his compelling and gripping book called A Tale of Three Kings, author Gene Edwards says, David was enrolled by God in a very prestigious, private school at a young age. 
Edwards writes this, God has a university. It's a small school. Few enroll, and even fewer graduate. Very, very few indeed. God has this school because he does not have enough broken men and women. In God's sacred school of submission and brokenness, why are there so few students? Because all students in this school must suffer much pain. If brokenness, then, is what the Lord desires for us, and if brokenness is what he's trying to accomplish here in David's life, then this raises a question. What is brokenness? Well, here's my best attempt to come up with a succinct definition. Um, hopefully, next time, maybe I'll, come up, I'll be able to shorten this. I did my best to shorten it as much as I could. Uh, but even still, I found I was left wanting, going, ah, just don't think this covers everything. But here's what I got for today. What is brokenness? It's an attitude of humble dependence on the Lord that produces a deep intimacy with him and a constant yieldedness to him. An attitude of humble dependence on the Lord that produces deep intimacy with him and a constant yieldedness to him. Why do we need to be broken, you might ask? Well, because as Spurgeon once insightfully wrote, our inherited sin nature that we all have is like an ill-tempered horse apt to run away. We are... We need to be bridled, says Spurgeon, by the Lord. Our hearts are like wild mustangs, but the Lord wants to turn us into dignified show horses or racing horses that are trained and, and disciplined so that we can be used by him. The Lord has a special place in his heart for broken people because they consistently make time for him in their morning devotions. They have surrendered the need to control their life. Broken people have given up their rights. They no longer desire to be right all the time. They realize they deserve nothing, so they demand nothing. They daily deny themselves. They welcome criticism so they can grow. They're quick to seek forgiveness from those that they hurt. They grieve over their sin. They're transparent about their weaknesses. They care more about the Lord's reputation than they do their own. And they crave intimacy with the Lord more than anything else on this earth. That's why the Lord loves broken people because they know who they are in light of who he is. So this brings up a question that I feel compelled to ask you now that I've answered a couple questions. Have you been broken? Could it be 
that the very thing you are resenting God for doing in your life right now is the very thing he is trying to use to break you so that you can walk more closely with him. So that you can enjoy an intimacy with him that will change your life by walking more closely with him than you ever have before. I think David realized this. Look at David's response in verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. This is a fascinating verse, and it's also a popular verse, a famous verse in the scriptures. Notice, as I said last week, though, our spirit or soul is the only thing of value that we can give the Lord, and it's the only thing that he really wants from us. The word commit used in the ESV is a fascinating word in the Hebrew text because it means to deposit or to entrust. Verse 5 was actually quoted by Jesus when he was on the cross. Did you know that? Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Once again, Jesus quoting the Psalms during his darkest day. It was quoted by Stephen, uh, verse 5 here, Psalm 31, 5. It's quoted by Stephen when he was stoned in Acts chapter 7, verse 59. And it was also quoted by many other greatly used saints throughout church history, uh, such as John Huss, Martin Luther, Philip, Philip Melanchthon, and John Knox before they died. Psalm 31, 5 is the verse that they quoted. Into your hand I commit my spirit. So, what's our application? Uh, We like to write out and consider applications because God has called us to be doers of his word. Uh, The word is, according to James uh, chapter 1, is a mirror. It shows us things about ourselves. And the Lord wants us to then respond by, by doing what he's called us to do. Well, here's one application that comes to mind. Renew or strengthen your commitment to the Lord. If you're going through a breaking season, it is the perfect time to renew or strengthen your commitment to the Lord. Sometimes people enter breaking seasons where the Lord is trying to crush them because they've wandered from Him. They've strayed. Much like the the, the popular hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, says, Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love which that verse in the hymn itself implies, why on earth would you leave the God that you love? Because I'm an ill-tempered horse that needs to be bridled. Some people, though, that go through a break-in season haven't done anything wrong. They're walking with the Lord. It's just that the Lord wants to take them deeper. They may be hanging out in kind of the five-foot end of the swimming pool, and the Lord's like, no, it's time to go to eight feet now where your toes can't touch the bottom anymore. Every breaking season we experience should cause us to examine our relationship with the Lord and to increase our commitment to Him. This is vital, I think, because no believer in heaven can say that they walked too closely with Jesus while on earth. 
No believer in heaven's going, yeah, I should have maybe ratcheted it down a little bit. I think I was too intense for the Lord when I was down there. Man, I really made a fool of myself. <laughs> because of our inherited sin nature, because we're the ill-tempered horse that Spurgeon talks about, there's always more love that we could give to Christ. There's always more that we could do for him. In fact, every believer in eternity, I think, wishes they had loved Jesus more while they had the chance. And what's very convicting, when as I study some of the saints in church history, like you know Bunyan or Spurgeon or um, some of the Puritan writings, what's amazing is some people that just, like they were martyrs for the gospel, is to hear them say, I wish I could do more for Christ. And of course, I'm looking at their life going, jeez, how much more could you do? So, again, I'm back to another question. I feel compelled to ask you, Vanguard Bible Church. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength? As David did. And David did when he was in a breaking season. David was... As I mentioned last week, he was in a, a season where the Lord reminded him, I'm all, of you, I'm all you have, and I'm all you need. The Lord longs for our brokenness so he can maximize our usefulness. Here's a look at verses 6 through 8 as David continues to write out his prayer. Look at verse 6 with me. I, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and you have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Here's number two in your outline. Breaking seasons reveal whether our faith is real. Breaking seasons reveal whether our faith is real. The Lord doesn't test our faith so he can see how strong it is. I think he instead tests our faith so we can see how weak it is. He already knows. He just wants to show us how much farther we have to go or how we need to grow. Because we, again, being the ill-tempered horses that we are, can give lip service, yeah, I love the Lord, yeah, man, he's awesome. But then we go into a breaking season where the enemy's closing in, we've lost everything, that all of our crutches are removed, and then we get to see whether we actually mean what we say. Notice how David reasserts his love for the Lord in verse 6 by hating what God hates. He didn't sell out and say, ah, oh, forget the Lord, man. If Jesus loved me, I wouldn't be in this situation. I'm going to go and just indulge in some sin so I can feel better. No, he doesn't do that. He re reasserts, I hate what you hate, Lord. I hate those that, that, that pay regard to idols. They worship other gods. Notice also in verse 7, he acknowledges that the Lord is aware of his circumstances and then in verse 8, he thanks the Lord for what he has done. David was definitely a glass half full guy. 
I was just thinking about this last night at verse 8, where he says, And you have not delivered me into the hand of, of the enemy. Have to admit, I tend to be the glass half-empty guy, so I would have been like, why is there even an enemy at all? You know? <laughs> but, but I was just really convicted reading verse 8. Man, look at how David is able to still see the positive, you know? And I know some of you sanguines are out there going, yeah, couldn't you see that? I mean, that's just how we live our life. Can't you live like that too? Shh. So, <laughs> just like you and I, though, squeezed out a tube of toothpaste this morning to get what was on the inside out, <laughs> the Lord uses pressure and trials to squeeze out of us what's on the inside. Intense trials and pressure reveal what we really believe and they reveal what we really love. And so... Verse 6, I think, is a reminder that, that if you find comfort in sin or in the Savior, when your crucible reveals, it reveals whether you love sin or the Savior. So if you run to sin when you're suffering, you love sin. If you run to the Savior when you're suffering, you clearly love Jesus. Sadly, not everybody does the latter. You probably have heard the cliche, Put your money where your mouth is. Well, and I think Psalm 31 shows that David was willing to put his faith where his mouth is. And there are some people listening to my voice today that probably need to do the same. So that's our application. Put your faith where your mouth is. David reasserted his faith in verse 6. He reasserted his understanding of God's sovereignty and omniscience in verse 7 and his trust in the Lord's goodness in verse 8. The New Testament is filled with references to the fact that there have always been and always will be more people that profess faith in Christ than actually have it. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 7. Not everyone, Jesus says, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Doing God's will was the litmus test for faith. Also in the New Testament, most of 1 John is uh, dedicated to exposing those who claim to know Christ but don't walk as Jesus did. John was quite passionate and adamant about that in 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. In my study of 1 John a couple years ago, I found, I found John to be quite prophetic and blunt. I think he was ticked off that there were people claiming to know Jesus that didn't actually walk with him. And he kind of wanted them to stop claiming you're on the team. Go be on another team. Claim that team because you're not acting like us. This is who we are and what we do. We love Jesus, we walk with Jesus. Faith doesn't become real until it's exercised, and it's not truly exercised until we're put in a situation in which Jesus is all we've got. And that's when you find out who you really love. Look at verses 9 to 13 with me. David then 
transitions and begins to make some requests from the Lord. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. Verse 9. My eye is wasted from grief and my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many and terror on every side. And as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life, Sounds pretty depressing. Sounds like high school. (laughs) Here's number three on your outline. Breaking seasons are often brought on by sin. Breaking seasons are often brought on by sin. Now, I want to qualify that. There's a double meaning I have intended here on purpose. Sometimes the Lord brings breaking seasons, crushing seasons into our lives as a consequence for a specific sin. But other times, he uses someone else's sin against us to do the crushing. I think this is because our sin proves our need to be broken, and others sinning against us often makes us feel broken. It really hurts when other people sin against us. This can be seen in the text. Notice in verse 10, I want to compare verse 10 and contrast it to verse 11. Notice in verse 10, David is saying, For my life is spent with sorrow, and he goes on, My iniquity. So he's admitting that I think I did something, I think I sinned and contributed to this problem in some way that I'm in right now. But then notice, He transitions in 11, and he talks about his adversaries, his enemies, and their sin. So, in other words, David's sorrow caused him, in verse 10, to examine his own heart, which revealed a sin pattern that needed to be dealt with. This type of self-assessment is counterintuitive, because our sin nature actually prefers to blame others for our problems. But in David's case, he realizes that His own sin may have contributed to his problems, and he needed to own it. It takes an unusual humility to do this kind of self-examination. David did it. But then in verse 11, he says, Because of my adversaries, now he details what his enemies are doing to him. So David's current suffering seems to have been brought on by both his own sin and sinners sinning against him. So how exactly does the Lord bring brokenness into our lives? Here are, I wanted to share with you, uh, since David's talking about his enemies, which are people, um, I wanted to share with you four tools the Lord uses for breaking us. Four tools. Uh, A is people, which he's already talking about. This is perhaps the most common tool. In David's life, it was Saul, when he was anointed king.
king by Samuel, but not yet king, not yet installed. You might remember the story from 1 Samuel. David was on the run for several years while Saul, the established king, was threatened by David and insecure and not walking with the Lord and trying to kill David. But then Absalom was the tool that God used later in David's life. However, it doesn't have to be someone with malicious intent. Sometimes the Lord uses people who genuinely care about us, like a spouse or a fellow believer, a brother or sister in Christ, or it could be a church leader delivering a timely word of correction. Proverbs 27.6 says, wounds from a friend can be trusted. There, There is a good wounding that can take place where you say a hard, loving truth to somebody, and it stings a little bit, but they need to hear it. And and Proverbs says, if we're wise and we're godly, we'll receive that with humility and, and make changes in our heart. But the Lord can use people in a good way to break us, not sinning against us, but giving a loving word of correction or accountability. Here's letter B. Another tool that he uses is humiliation. Humiliation. David mentions being the laughing stock of his enemies many times in the Psalms. In 1 Peter 5, Peter says that we should humble ourselves, but some choose not to do that, so the Lord has to do the humbling. Humiliation is a way of reminding us that we are, as the old song says, not too sexy for our shirt, and that we need the Lord more than we realize. Sometimes it's, again, not that you did anything wrong. It's not that you were arrogant or prideful. It's just the Lord wants to humiliate you, to take you to a deeper level with him, and to teach you some lessons that you need to learn. It's, other times it is because you were starting to think you were too sexy for your shirt, and the Lord decided, I'm taking the shirt, and you're going to get humbled here. Being humiliated has a way of purging our obsession with our own reputation. Someone once told me that if I take care of the Lord's reputation, he'll take care of mine. I think that's pretty good advice. So he uses people, he uses humiliation, he uses pain, let her see. It could be emotional or it could be physical. This could be a season of serious illness or a chronic illness that lasts a lifetime. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul references a thorn in the flesh uh, that God had given him to keep him from becoming too proud because of his ministry accomplishments. And it was most likely some kind of physical ailment that forced Paul to depend on the Lord more than he would have without it. Many well-known saints in church history, such as Charles Spurgeon, you've heard me mention him before, lived in great physical pain. However, born out of that pain was powerful preaching that God used to minister to millions and bring millions to faith in Christ over the next hundred years after Spurgeon's death. 
Pain has a way of purging our idols and deepening our prayer life and severing our love for the world and increasing our longing for heaven. And those of you that are familiar with pain like I am, physical pain, you know what I'm talking about. You begin to pray, come Lord Jesus, a lot more often. So he uses people, he uses humiliation, he uses pain, and here's the last tool I've seen him use often, and that is loss. Letter D is loss. We don't like it when we lose things, whether it be a job or a loved one, but the Lord has a purpose in loss. It could be a relationship. It could be the passing of a loved one. It could be a huge financial loss. But the Lord is able to use such painful losses in many good ways, including showing us that what we lost could never fully satisfy our souls. Sometimes in taking something away, the Lord shows us we love that thing, whether it's a person, a relationship, a house, a job, money, a car. Sometimes he uses that to show us you loved it more than me. And you wouldn't have realized it until I took it away and you started crying like a baby that lost its pacifier. The Lord has allowed or caused tragic losses in the lives of many saints through the centuries that he later redeemed for good. One example that came to mind as I was uh, studying this passage last night was C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis, whose wife died shortly after he married her, uh, out of that pain, Lewis wrote a book called A Grief Observed, in which he just recorded and wrote down like a diary his struggle with God and doubting God's goodness and his anger with God. And that book, A Grief Observed, has since comforted thousands of people who have lost loved ones since. But again, it's, you know, he had to go through that in order to wrestle and struggle with the topic and, and then write it so then others could be ministered to by it. So he uses people, he uses humiliation, he uses pain, he uses loss. How do we apply this section here? Well, examine your heart with humility, like David did. If you're going through a breaking season, ask the Lord if there is a sin pattern you need to repent of, like he mentions here in verse 10. Or if you have a boss that throws spears at you like Saul threw them at David, then ask the Lord, what do you want me to learn from this person, this man, this woman? How do you want to use them in my life? Why do you have me here? How are you going to use this to shape me, Lord? How do you want to use this person, this humiliation, this pain, or this loss to bring me closer to you? Because that's always God's intent, is to use the pain and the loss and the trials to bring you closer to him. Because the Lord longs for our brokenness so he can maximize our usefulness. Look at verses 14 to 18. He says, But I trust you, O Lord. I say, You are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. 
Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame instead, and let them go silently to shell. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak instantly against the righteous in pride and contempt. Here's number four in your outline. Breaking seasons remind us that we are not in control. They remind us that we are not in control. Many of us would admit that, but we don't actually believe that. (laughs) We don't live like that. We live to try and get control of our lives from the Lord. But notice David, he surrenders again. Verse 15, my times are in your hand. Some translations render this, my life is in your hands, or others use, my future is in your hands. But David applied his understanding of God's sovereignty to his current situation, and he found comfort. Although God's sovereignty can be confusing, it can always be comforting. Someone that's been teaching me a lot about this uh, that I've been learning from is South African pastor uh, Andrew Murray. He was very uh, popular and well used by the Lord in the 19th century. When Murray was visiting England in 1895, he had finished a kind of a speaking tour where he was preaching uh, the gospel, and he began to suffer pain from a previous back injury, so much so that he got laid up and stayed at someone's house. Well, while he was recuperating from his back injury, uh, his hostess told him, there's a woman downstairs that's in great trouble. She heard, you know, Pastor Murray, that you're here, and she wants to know if you have any counsel for her. And so Murray said, give her this piece of paper. I've been writing some encouragement to myself, so I can be encouraged. Here, just take this and give it to her. Here's what Murray wrote on the paper. And I'll put it on the screen for you behind me. And again, he was writing this so that he could repeat it to himself every day as he's laid up with a back injury, suffering in great pain. In times of trouble, say, first, God brought me here. It is by his will I am in this straight place. In that, I will rest. Next, He will keep me in his love and give me grace in this trial to behave as his child. Then, he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. Last, in his good time, he can bring me out again how and when he knows. Therefore, I am here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, for his time. Can you say that? And by the way, if you want me to send this to you, send me an email, I'll copy and paste it so you can stick it up on your mirror like I probably will. Application, like David did, verse 15, my times are in your hand. We need to surrender control of our lives like he did. I have learned in my own walk with the Lord 
that the only type of surrender the Lord will accept is unconditional. He cannot be negotiated with, bargained with, or swindled. I've also learned that unconditional surrender means releasing control of the process he has you in and the outcome he has ordained. Doing this is easier to do if we believe what David writes next. Look at verse 19 with me. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Here's the last point in your outline. Number five, breaking seasons have hope at the end. Breaking seasons have hope at the end. Psalm 31, 19, verse 19 here that I just read is one of my favorite verses in the entire book of Psalms, all 150 chapters. I've read it and prayed it out loud myself many times the last few years. It's, it's the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. In some Bible translations, it's written as an exclamation. Spurgeon shares this great insight regarding verse 19. He says, Holy amazement uses interjections where adjectives utterly fail. Notes of exclamation suit us when words of explanation are of no avail. David paints a picture of a, a reservoir of blessings that have been dammed up, and that reservoir is building and building and building to the point where the Lord in his timing will allow it to overflow on his people down below. On those, notice the qualifiers in verse 19. It's stored up for those who fear him and take refuge in him. So the application, praise the Lord for what he will do. You might be thinking, but I don't know what he's going to do. Nope, you don't. But according to the scriptures and the testimony of thousands of saints, we can trust and count on the fact that he will work all things for good. Because he can only do good for his children. So breaking seasons have hope at the end. Some of you remember that when I was in college, I worked for the University of Iowa football program and as a student manager. One of my first weeks that I was there, I got grabbed by another fellow manager and then the full-time equipment manager said, hey, you guys, take these balls in and go scuff them. And it was a set of new Wilson officially licensed college footballs. These are the like $50 leather kind. I said, scuff them. What, what? So, so I followed them into the equipment room, and there was a, a grinding machine that they turned on. And they, they said, we've got to take these balls, and we need to scuff them because when they come from the factory, they have a wax on them that makes them too hard to grip. They're slippery. So quarterbacks can't throw them. The receivers can't catch them. They've got to be broken in. 
And so we, they taught me how to take the balls and, and I had to rub them up against this grinder to intentionally put scars in the leather to get the wax off. And so we scuffed them. But then the process wasn't done yet. Those balls then got put in a rotation so they would be used in practice for a couple of weeks to further the breaking in process. And then once the balls have been in a circulation of being used in practice and kicked around a little bit where the newness wore off and the leather got exposed where you could actually grip the ball and even if the ball was a little wet you could still grip it because there was real leather there as opposed to the wax. Every Friday, the day before a game, the student managers lined up all the best balls that had been in the practice rotation. And usually it was something like 15 to 20 of them. And the first and second string quarterback would go down the line, much like you see here in this picture, and they would pick up each ball and they would feel it because every ball was different. Although they look identical, they're all different. And quarterbacks, being experts at their craft, can tell a difference just like a, a guitar player can tell a difference between one guitar and another guitar that come from the same factory. And so they would feel the ball. Sometimes they'd say, hey, go over there. I'm going to throw this real quick. No, nah, I don't want that one. And they'd pick up there, this is a good one. Put that one in. No, I don't want that one. That one needs to go into rotation again. And their job was to pick out eight balls that could be used in the game. They would be set aside in a special bag, and then those balls would be given to the game officials. And then if you've watched college football on the sideline, there are usually officials or managers or staff that rotate the balls in, and they're on each sideline. Each team has its own balls that they use. What I learned as a new believer watching that process one day is I, I, th I found it very interesting that there were balls that were new but couldn't be used yet until they had been broken in. And once they were broken in, it was because the quarterbacks were able to get their grip on the ball so they could send the ball effectively where they needed it to go. Do you know where I'm going with this? You see, quarterbacks only choose balls that fit their hands and allow them to grip them. The Lord is looking for some Christ followers that he can get a hold of. He's looking for some Christ followers that have been broken in, that he can get a grip on, and then he can send wherever he wants them to go so the gospel advances down the field. And so I leave you with this question. Have you been broken yet? He wants to break you in so he can get his grip on you and use you to do great things. He longs for your brokenness so he can maximize your usefulness. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I realize that a passage like this and a topic like this is not popular in American churches because it is countercultural to what the world tells us. The world celebrates wildness and rebellion and unsubmissiveness. The world celebrates and champions individuality and being your own person.
Lord, the scriptures tell us that you champion brokenness. An attitude of desperate dependence and yieldedness to you. Father, would you please work in our church so that it is filled with broken people that you can get your hands on and use to do amazing things. Lord, I want to pray for those that might be in a breaking season right now. They, they, they are in the vice and it's tightening on them. Would you please, Lord, encourage them? Would you please, Lord, as, as an orthopedic surgeon, do, do masterful work to heal and reset bones and help them, just maybe give them a glimpse of what you're doing in their life so they can be encouraged. I realize, Lord, there are others here that maybe have no clue what I'm talking about. They've had a pretty good life and they've not gone through a crushing season yet where they've had to learn Jesus is all I need because Jesus is all I have. I just pray, Father, that you might write this passage and this message on their hearts so, just so they can remember it when that season comes. Because we know, Lord, from your word that any child of God who knows Christ as their Savior will go through breaking times. Father, we ask for your continued favor in our church. We thank you for our visitors today. Lord, would you continue to bless our church with growth and strength so that we can tell others that Jesus loves them, died for them, and wants a relationship with them. We love you and we thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.